Hey church, welcome to Frontline Community Church Podcast. My name is Cody Mahaffey and I'm the connections and group pastor here at Frontline in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So our mission here is simple, to see zero people unchanged by Jesus. So whether you've been following Jesus your whole life or your journey has just begun, we hope that this message will help draw you near to the person of Jesus. Be challenged and encouraged by his word and be moved to action. We hope these next few moments are a blessing to you and equip you to see who God really is and who you really are in him. Well, hey, good morning, Frontline. It's just good to see all of you. It's good to worship with you this morning. It's also good to have you if you're joining, watching, or listening online. Uh, how many of you have heard the, the phrase before, drive it like it's a rental? You ever heard that? Not a lot. I mean, here's, here's what this means, okay? If you've never heard it, drive it like a rental. Uh, drive it like there ain't no tomorrow. And uh, tear it up, have some fun, put a whooping on some sort of machinery or car or vehicle, uh, knowing that at the end of your rental or at the end of your experience, you can hand the keys back with little to no repercussions. That's what it means to drive it like it's a rental. You can imagine my excitement, my blood pressure, my energy level when I got to drive this thing uh, a couple months ago. This is a very nice car. Uh, in my line of work, we don't get to drive stuff like this very often. Uh, and if it is, it's usually at the goodwill of somebody else. So somebody let me borrow this. I was dropping off something else at, at this person's place and uh, this car rolled in that he had let somebody else borrow it. And he goes, well, you surely can't leave without taking this for a ride. And, it, and I looked at him and then I looked at it and I was like, you make an excellent point. <laughs> I can't leave without driving that. And, and I sat in, in in the steering wheel and I started up. This is a Corvette and it's a mid-engine Corvette. So the engine's behind you. I can't explain it other than say it, it is unbelievable. Uh, I turned into a 12-year-old kid that all of my dreams started coming true at the same time. And I went, I can drive this thing. And uh, we put it in gear. I had a buddy with me sitting in the front seat. And so we started driving. And I'm, I'm not even kidding. I mean, I, I barely touched that gas pedal. I'm going 60 miles an hour already. I, mean, I haven't even started I mean, this is so exciting and I'm getting excited. I'm, I'm wanting to push it. I'm wanting to see how it can go. He was telling me like, oh yeah, just the other week we're on the highway and we punched it just for a second. We went like 120, 130 and I'm sitting there going, that is the fastest I have ever gone in my life. I need to do that. And so on one side, right, 12-year-old David is speaking like, punch it, punch it, just for fun. Get on, it was like in Jenison, Chicago Drive. I was like, get on Chicago Drive and just hit it. Like there's no tomorrow. Let's be honest, I could outrun law enforcement at this point, okay? <laughs> All these things start running through my mind. Here's the other side of my brain that starts talking, which is funny because it was in the voice of my wife that says, if anything breaks on this, you're homeless. <laughs> And so I'm like, whoa, go back and forth, back and forth, drive it like a rental or not. Here's the thing, I did drive it like a rental. Uh, I drove it 60 miles an hour and I would slow down to 30 and then I'd punch it back up to 60. Then I would slow back down to 30. I drove it like I had to hand it back. Uh, because that is exactly what I had to do. I had to fill it up. I filled up the gas tank too, uh, right at the end. And I've never paid for premium gas before. I don't know if you guys have paid for premium. It's way more expensive. I babied this thing. I took such good care of it. I was nice to it. I parked, when I parked, I parked it like among three spaces so that there's no possibility of anybody doing anything. I preserved this thing, protected this thing. I, I babied this, I, I stewarded it as best as possible because I knew at the end of my ride and at the end of my exp experience, I have to give it back. And on top of that, I have to give an account for what I did with it 
Well, I had it. So here's where we're going today, okay? We're in the series. It's called Kingdom Culture. Question, uh, as we work through all these different parables that Jesus said, what do you think God is going to hold us accountable for? If you think about our life, think about our marriages, our families, our kids, our workplaces, neighborhoods, our assets, our retirement, our time, everything that God has given us, it's not just a gift and he goes, eh, whatever you do, you do, you know, just have fun, take care of it. It's, like, it's kind of like, like my 2006 Toyota Sienna. It's kind of like what happens to it happens to it. You know, we got scratched. Somebody ran a shopping cart into it, scraped it along. It's kind of like, oh, well, it's a 2006. Do you have that posture towards your life or do you have the posture of your life? Like I got to care for this thing. I got to protect this thing. I got to steward this thing because I think God cares about this thing called life that he has entrusted me with. If God could ask you about any specific area of your life that he might be more concerned with, maybe with your level or type of stewardship, what area of your life do you think God would focus on? What area of your life do you think you would pay attention to? Uh, I'm excited for today's message only because it, it hits home for me. And I, and I hope it connects with you as you leave today going, God has entrusted us with a lot. And I believe he's going to hold us accountable someday. Someday we're going to have to stand in his presence, look him face to face, look him in the eyes, and actually give an account for what we did with what he gave us. So like I said, this series that we're in, it's called Kingdom Culture, and we're looking at the kingdom of God and the distinctives that make people who are a part of the kingdom of God different than the rest of the world, different than anybody else, different than how the world says, live your life, you know, because uh, there ain't no tomorrow, YOLO, right? You only live once. It's different, actually, in the kingdom of God. It, what, we, what we get to do and what we have inherited from our God is for a purpose, and it's also for a time. So... Jesus, we're, we're going to unpack this parable that Jesus tells a bunch of religious leaders today. And uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you can pull your Bible out. Uh, we're going to be referencing that. But before I even get into Mark 12, I have to tell you what happened in Mark 11, because it, it tees up the entire story and the entire parable that Jesus is going to tell us. So Jesus and his disciples, uh, they're in the last week of Jesus's life. So Palm Sunday is the day. This is the scene. This is where it takes place. In seven days, Jesus is going to be arrested. He's going to be tried, sort of, you know, like in a, in a criminal court, but, but with no witnesses and no evidence. Jesus would be falsely accused, falsely convicted, nailed to a cross, and he would die. This is within seven days of that event. Jesus is heading into Jerusalem. He wants to take his disciples to the temple. And so he's leading the 12, and as he's leading in, like this is the view, right? I mean, it, it's kind of rugged, rough terrain. It's in the Middle East, and so you can see Jerusalem coming up. You can see where they're headed right towards the temple. But there's this funny scene that happens in Mark 11 that you could read right over it, not think anything of it, but it fits. It connects the entire story together. It says, Jesus saw a tree. It was a fig tree. And he was hungry. Fig trees, right? If you had fig newtons, I don't know if you like them or not. I like them. I think they're good. Jesus saw a fig tree and went, that looks delicious. I'm excited to eat that. As he gets close to this fig tree, as he gets close, he looks at the branches and he discovers this tree is big. It's bushy. It's, it's ready. It should be ripe with fruit. And there's nothing. There's no fruit. There's nothing on the tree. And, and the disciples heard what Jesus said. Jesus cursed the tree and said, may you never bear fruit again. And then he goes on his way. 
and he heads into Jerusalem. It's a clue for where we're going today. Jesus focused on the lack of fruit. So anyway, Jesus goes into the temple and uh, this is ominous, right? It's an ominous way to start because Jesus walks in and what it says is in Mark 11, I think right around 10 or 11, verse 10 or 11, it says Jesus walked in and he looked around at the temple, but it was too late to do anything. So he left. That should make everybody around Jesus nervous. Jesus come in and he does one of these. Your mom ever do this? Your dad ever do this? Maybe a boss? They come in, they show up, kind of look around. You say, hey, can I help you? No. And they just look around and go, I'll be back tomorrow. And then they leave. Do you feel excited about tomorrow? Do you look forward to tomorrow? Or do you take the day off like I try to do? This is what happens. Jesus goes in and he, he goes, eh, it's too late. I'll come back tomorrow. The next day he walks in and what he sees in the temple, he did not like. This is where Jesus saw the money changers. Jesus, Jesus flipped tables. If you've ever heard the story of Jesus flipping tables, he did it that next day. One of the accounts, the gospels write, Jesus had a whip and he drove these people out because what they had done inside the temple, inside God's house, where God said, this is to be a house of prayer, they turned it into a marketplace. They were buying and selling. It was a place of exchanging money. It was a place of buying sacrifices. People who would travel mile upon mile upon mile to get there, they'd, they'd bring their family, they'd bring whatever they had. The poorest of poor would even be in there. And the religious leaders and the institution would take advantage of people. They had turned it into a marketplace. And this place that was supposed to be holy and set apart and different became a place of, of market share and profiteering and taking advantage of people and extortion. And the people in charge of all of it were the religious leaders. They were called the Pharisees. So Jesus comes in and then he does all of this and he leaves. And the next day he comes back and wouldn't you know it that the religious leaders and the Pharisees wanted to have a conversation with Jesus. So that next day they walk in, here's what it says, Mark 11, verse 27. It says, they arrived again in Jerusalem, talking about Jesus and his disciples. And while Jesus was walking in the temple, in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to him. Verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you authority to do this? Let me translate. Who do you think you are, Jesus, that you could come into our temple, in our city? These are our people, our tables, our dollars, our processes, our way of doing things. Who do you think you are that you can come in and tell us how to do our thing? And Jesus, you can just imagine Jesus smiling. I imagine Jesus smiling a lot. I can imagine him smiling. And here's his response that he says back to the religious leaders to answer their question, who do you think you are? I'm going to read this to you. It's not going to be on the screen, but just listen to the story as one who would have been in the temple listening. It says this, Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and he put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the wine press and then he built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and he moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them, catch this, some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's the third time. You catch this? The fruit. He's highlighting the fruit yet again. The crowd gathered, right? The owner built this vineyard. This was normal. It'd be normal for an owner to hire tenants and then actually ask for a cut. Usually it was about 30%. 
that the tenants would give back to the owner. The owner built it. He set up the, the watchtower. He built the wall around it. He, he planted all of the grapes. He, he did the work and entrusted it to someone else. Most of the people listening, right? There's a crowd that gathers at this point. Most of the people listening knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. A bunch of them probably were tenant farmers. And they were there at the temple to worship. And this is what they see. So Jesus continues. Verse three, but they seized him. The owner sent word, you know, he wants to collect some of the fruit, but they seized him. They beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Then he, being the owner, sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. Verse seven, but the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Jesus looked at the crowd. He looked at everybody else there and he says this, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you do? Right, I mean, you're demonstrating your patience. You're demonstrating your love. You're demonstrating your willingness to work with these people that are, are just responding wickedly. And so you wait and you wait and you wait and finally you send your own son and in this culture, that son was the father. Everything he said, everything he did, it was with the utmost authority of his father and they killed him. What would you do if you're the owner? Some of us, there aren't words for what we would do. I love Jesus looked at his disciples in one of the other accounts and I think it was Peter, it could, have been, it could have been any of them, but I always think it's Peter. Uh, one of them says, well, surely he will bring a wretched end to those wretched men. <laughs> I just thought it was funny, even if you don't think it's funny. I thought it was funny. Here's what they said, right? He looked at the disciples. They said, he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Verse 10, Jesus says, haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus tells this parable, this story, meant to illustrate a truth about the kingdom of God, about how things work. Remember the question the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked him, it was this, who do you think you are? that you can come in and tell us how to run our lives or tell us how to run our businesses or tell us how to manage people or tell us how to manage the temple. Who do you think you are? On whose authority are you here telling us how to do things in our lives? Who told you? And Jesus told this story and you could, you could see it, right? You can get it. You, you don't own this thing that you've taken ownership of. That's what the, the tenants did. That was their mistake, is the things that they were entrusted, the things that they were handed, the things they did not work for or earn, the things they could not work for or earn, they were entrusted to by God himself over a long period of time, and they were stewards of what was owned by God. But their mistake was thinking, this is mine. To the point that the very owner, being God himself, sends his son 
as a representation of him. And within seven days, they would take him, they would arrest him, they would nail him to a cross. And it says that in the text, they knew that Jesus spoke this against them. Here's what it says, verse 12. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid. They're afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. How do you think they knew that Jesus spoke this against them? Here's something, we would miss this, but I think it's awesome. I think Jesus is a master. At the beginning, remember when Jesus says, there's an owner and he has a vineyard and he builds a wall with a watchtower. You remember when Jesus describes that? Let me take you to the scene, okay? Here's the temple that they would have been in. Do you notice any large structures surrounding the outside of the temple? Like a wall per se? You can imagine Jesus looking at all of the people and going, I want you to imagine a made up pretend story. It starts like this. There's an owner and he has a vineyard and he built a great big wall. And he says, and I want to, I want to tell you this too. He, he built a watchtower in his vineyard. Notice the, the four large watchtowers here nearby. Can you imagine Jesus? I think he has a great sense of humor. I imagine Jesus going, and then he built a watchtower. Huh. And then as he starts describing the tenants, I can imagine him starting to look eye to eye to eye with the religious leaders, with the Pharisees, with the teachers of the law, who probably looked just like this. The ones who were angry, the ones who the day before said, we need to kill this guy. The ones who wanted right now to arrest him, to convict him, to eliminate him, to get rid of it so that they could take ownership of this thing that they had been entrusted with. I want you to catch something. Why would God be so patient with them? Why was the owner so patient in the parable? I really think patience speaks to something deeper. Patience speaks to love. I think the owner actually cared for the tenants just like God actually cared for and loved deeply all of us, religious leaders, business leaders, people in the community, rich and poor, I mean, you, you name it. God's heart is always moved by people. And I think the biggest thing that made Jesus upset in this story was the stewardship of people. Those men I just showed you a, a picture of were in the position to steward people, some of whom in their most vulnerable state, Visitors, travelers, foreigners, they would all come into the temple. They would worship. Some would come over, overjoyed and exploding with excitement to be there in the temple, in the presence of God. Others, I imagine, probably like many of us, it's how we show up to church sometimes. You feel shame, guilt, needy, hungry. And when they showed up to the temple, what Jesus cares about so much is the stewardship of people. What do you think Jesus would experience if Jesus came to a, an average American church today? What do you think he would experience? What, what if he came to our church? What if he was sitting next to you right now? What if he walked over in the 
in the frontline kids area? What, what if he came to the student ministry that we have later? What if he sat in with your small group or he went home with you today and, and you had lunch or he, he followed you at work or in your neighborhood? What, what do you think would concern Jesus about the way that you steward what he's given you? The, the thing I draw out of this parable is the patience of God. How patient he is even in the midst of bad stewardship. In the midst of wrongs, in the midst of injustices, I, I, think, I think God's trying to communicate something not just to the religious teachers and leaders of the time. He's also trying to communicate something to us. And it says stewardship matters. It's vitally important how we care for what God has entrusted us with. And that includes everything, not just select things. But it would be so easy for the Pharisees and the teachers of the law to assume that God's patience was actually indifference. Said it a different way, I'll just say it this way, God's patience should not be confused with indifference. If you ever say this, I don't know, some, there's a lot of stuff in my life I don't steward really well, I don't take care of that right now, maybe my finances are kinda off, uh, they're kinda crazy right now and I, there's a lot of debt and I can't pay for all of it right now, but it's, it's, what, it's fine, like nothing bad's happened yet. Maybe it's marriage and you go, I've neglected my marriage for a while, maybe it's a season, maybe it's a long season, uh, but, but nothing bad's happened yet, right? Nothing blew up, so it, we're, we're okay. Maybe it's your spiritual, health and your spiritual walk with Jesus and you say nothing bad or drastic has happened to you. God hasn't intervened yet. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's your body. So often I, I think we take or we may make the mistake of taking God's patience with us in bad stewardship as indifference. But what the story tells us is God cares a lot about what we do with what he has entrusted us. It's totally different when we see it as things that we own versus things that we have been entrusted with of which we need to give an account. If I had a guess, I would guess a lot of you right now have something in your mind, something in your life, something that you go, I've done really well in these couple areas, but I got one or two that are, are not good right now. I mean, that's me. I, I put, put myself in that category. I got this bright idea. I've shared this with you before. Uh, I see counselor on a regular basis. Um, and right now it's kind of like every other month or something like that, I, I pop in and see him. And back in January, uh, you know, midst of uh, a heavy ministry season, Christmas had just gotten done, ramping up for a lot of spring stuff. So I was busy. I was at work a lot. Um, and then Shannon and I were having some communication misses back and forth. And so I got this bright idea. I'm going to bring Shannon with me to my, to my counseling appointment. This is awesome. what could go wrong, right? Everybody laughing. It's like, I've been there. <laughs> so I walked in. I hadn't. I was about to learn. I walked in and sat down with Shannon. I'm giddy. I'm excited. I'm like, this guy, he's been so good for me. And he, he's saying, we're going to work on some stuff and talk about communication. And so what he says is, let's pick like low hanging fruit. Like what's something we could practice communicating about? Something that, that, that is unresolved. Shannon, do you have anything that you'd like to share? So she didn't come you know, prepared for this or having some sort of agenda that she's going to take. But she, she starts talking about like, what, can we talk about like David's days off? And I was like, yeah, this, this is easy. Like, I'm, there's no way I'm getting in trouble with this one. And so we, we start talking and, and then the tears start flowing down her face. And here's what she says. David is so tired when he comes home to us. 
He's tired every night. He comes home. And then the weekends, it's, he doesn't want to do anything. He's so exhausted. He falls asleep in the chair. The boys want to do stuff and play and have adventures. He has no energy to do that. And, and it's like he, he just recovers on his day off. And then it's a ramp up right again, getting ready for Sunday morning. And it happens every single week. And the tears started coming down because when she grew up, she had an awesome dad. Dad always took time with her and took her on adventures and created memories with her and, and would take her on little daddy-daughter dates. And I hadn't done almost any of that with my boys. And the tears start falling down. And I'm, I'm telling you, it was this wake-up call from God going, I want you to see how you're stewarding the most important thing I've entrusted to you. It'd be her, my wife, and my boys. Ministry is so easy, I'll tell you this, as a pastor, it's so easy to neglect a lot of other areas in my life to go, but it's ministry, God, and it's important, God, and it's fruitful, God, like this creates fruit, this is good for the kingdom, but it's never supposed to be at the expense of our first ministry. Here's something every one of us has in common. If you're married, if you have kids, if you have grandkids, whatever, your family is your first ministry. And what I've been taught, and I've had mentors in my life that have said, if you can't do that, if you can't steward your first ministry well, why would God entrust you with another one? It's this wake-up call. Met with a coach, been working with him now the last couple months, and he, he had this document he wanted me to fill out, and it looks at all of the different areas of life, and it's measuring. It was a self-assessment. How are you doing on stewarding your own life, David? And as I sat down, it's, you know, finance and body, health, you know, uh, mental health, spiritual health, walk with Jesus, marriage and time with your kids and creating memories. It, it looks at this very broad range of how are you stewarding not just one or two or three specific areas of your life. How are you stewarding your life as a representation of Jesus to the people around you? And if you're curious, if you go, well, how do I know if I'm doing the right thing or if I'm not doing the right thing? Let me define fruit. Can I define fruit? Jesus talked about it three different times. First, it was the fig tree. Second, it was in the temple, talking about the fruit that he wasn't seeing. Third was actually in the parable. Let me define fruit for you. What is the fruit? The first thing that you ought to look for is this. Is there evidence of the kingdom of God present? Well, what's the, what's the kingdom of God, David? Love. Joy, peace, patience. I'm walking through fruits of the Spirit here, right? When you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see evidence of the kingdom of God at work? You see evidence of the kingdom of God in your marriage or in your relationships or in your workplace or in your finances? Do you see an outcome where, where the kingdom of light and the kingdom of life and the kingdom of hope enters in and it drives out areas of despair and hopelessness and pain and bondage? Which fruit are you seeing in the different areas of your life? That's how you'll know. That's what Jesus was looking for. What's a, a second type of fruit? It'd be expansion of the kingdom of God. One of the chief sins that the Israelites made, God's chosen people all throughout scripture, was they believed and then acted on that belief that God had blessed them just for them. What God said to Abraham in Genesis is, I'm gonna bless the nations through you. 
The things that we've been entrusted, the things that we get to steward are for the purposes of showing evidence of God's kingdom and then expanding God's kingdom. Our workplaces and our marriages and our neighborhoods and relationships with people around us should change as a result of us being a part of them because what we bring is the kingdom of God. Here's the third one. It's a great overarching piece. It's just Christ-likeness. A word that we use in the church, it's been used in Christianity, it's used in the Bible, it talks about sanctification. It's the process of the longer you follow Jesus, the more you follow Jesus, the more every area and facet of your life looks like Jesus. People's interaction with you should be like they had an interaction with Jesus. This is where it fell apart for me with my family. If I play this out, treating my wife that way or treating my boys that way, overemphasizing other areas of life at the expense of them, what they will learn to do is to resent the church. They'll, they'll learn to resent God. They'll, they'll, learn, they'll learn to resent the kingdom of God because in their minds it had stolen their dad or it's stolen their husband. For you, your, your parents, your kids, your family, your relationships should love that God has called you to do what he has called you to do because it hasn't replaced them. The stewardship that you have is people. God has entrusted people to you. And that's why he held these Pharisees and religious leaders to the highest account because he was stewarding. They were stewarding people. So who are the people in your life that you need to steward for the kingdom of God, toward the kingdom of God, to show them evidence of the kingdom of God so that in them they expand the kingdom of God. And the whole process points to the person of Jesus. This is not a do better, try harder, and fix it sermon. This is a sermon that hinges on the person of Jesus. Jesus looked at all of them and was compelled and moved by love. Jesus set the model for what stewardship of people actually looks like. As a band walks up, I want you to picture Jesus stewarding you in the way that he went to the cross for you, in the way that he died for you. Not asking you, you know, to, to work for it or to earn it or to own it. What, what Jesus said, it, he just invited us into a relationship with him full of grace, full of mercy, knowing we hadn't stewarded well what he had entrusted to us, but knowing that he was going to steward what he had been entrusted with by going to the cross, laying his life down, and dying our death, paying for our sin. He traded places with us. The, the role or the people or the businesses, whatever it is that you've been entrusted with or asked to play, you could change people's lives. You change your kids' lives, your spouse's life, your grandkids' life, your coworkers' lives, your neighbors' lives. You, you could change and make such an impact and a dent on this world if you simply steward what God has given you well. So as we close, this is just, as I sat with this, this is just what I want to do. I bet there's an area or two that you're thinking of right now that's like, man, I'm not stewarding this well. The goal isn't to bring shame. The goal is not to bring guilt. In fact, the, the goal, if you look at the parable that Jesus told, it's an opportunity to turn 
to bring it back before Jesus, every person that was sent to those tenants, the tenants had another opportunity to write, to repent, to turn, to submit, to yield. If you go, I haven't done this well, like me. And I haven't done this well. God, I need help. What needs focus right now? What needs attention right now? What needs healing right now? What needs my time right now? What needs my focus right now? I mean, God is changing my life simply by yielding it entirely to him. And it's the same thing that I want and will pray for you also. So as we move in, just let's close with a a time of prayer. Uh, Would you just let God speak to that? He's not going to force himself on you. But if you will allow yourself to be open and allow your heart to be receptive, I I think God can bring something of life and of value and of hope and of peace to the area right now that maybe you desperately need him to. So let's pray together as we do that. So God, we just come before you. And uh, we know we're the tenants in the story, God. We know we're the ones that haven't done a great job stewarding what it is that you gave us. And God, just as an act of humility, I just, I pray that we would own that to you right now. God, this is the area that I've dropped the ball. This is the area I've made it all about me. This is the area that I've neglected you or used you or taken advantage of you, Jesus. I've taken advantage of your patience and treated it as indifference. God, would you make us a people that's just fully yielded to you? Not bound by the things of this world or the things of, whether it's the lust of the eyes or lust of the flesh, chasing things like the American dream or finances or independence. God, I I just pray that we would chase you. And in everything we do, we would build our lives on you. That we would see the most precious thing in the world, in all of history to you, your people. I pray, Lord, that we would see the people in our lives that you've entrusted us to the exact same way that you see them. In the same way that you see us. Give us what we need. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your mercy. And God, right now, we, we want to ask you through your Holy Spirit to lead us to know what to do as we respond and follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. We hope this message encouraged you to know who God is and who you are in him. If you want to take a next step, visit frontlinegr.com next. We look forward to connecting with you there and we'll see you back here next week.